Once there was this man who had two sons. One day, the younger son came to his father and said, Father, eventually I am going to inherit my share of your estate. Rather than waiting until you die, I want you to give me my share now. And so the father liquidated assets and divided them. Not many days later, the younger son took all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country. And he began to be in need. He felt so hungry that he wished he could eat the slop the pigs were eating. But nobody gave him anything. That brought him to his senses, and he said, All those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day. And here I am, starving to death. I'm going back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God, and I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. He got right up and went home to his father. The father looked off into the distance and saw the young man returning. He felt compassion for him. He ran to him, enfolded him in an embrace, and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have done a terrible wrong in God's sight and in your sight too. I have forfeited any right to be treated as your son. But the father turned to his servants and said, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. Go and get the fattest calf and butcher it. Let's have a feast and celebrate because my son was dead. And is alive again. He was lost. He was lost. He was lost. And has been found. Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here today here at First Christian Church, and I'd like to say welcome to both of both if groups of the congregation, if you will, both those of you here in the West Auditorium and those in the East Auditorium. I'm very glad that we're gathering together today to look at Scripture and to see what God would have to say to us about how we would live our lives, and particularly today, how we would turn our attention toward Him and walk toward Him. For those who are guests, my name is Wayne, and I'm part of the pastoral staff here, and I'm very glad you're with us. We're going to look at Luke chapter, Luke chapter 15 today, if you will, please. Luke 15, and if you don't own a Bible, you'll find that there's one uh, on the, in the pew rack in front of you or in the East Auditorium. There are people walking around making those available to you right now. We'd be glad if you would take that home with you. Or maybe you'd like to download a, a, um, a Bible onto your smartphone or tablet. That's a cool thing to do as well. A lot of us have those, but regardless, if you'd grab a hold of Luke chapter 15 today, we'd like to read there. While you're looking for Luke 15, I um, want to start, start this morning by saying, I suspect that many of you know that um, Leslie and I have a small sailboat uh, down on Lake Decatur. It's a 1984 Catalina. It's 22 feet long, and uh, I named it. I named it on behalf of the church because the church was very gracious in giving it to us very unexpectedly when uh, we celebrated our 20th anniversary here. And um, I've named it, many of you know this story, I've named it Visitation. And um, uh, the reason that we named it Visitation, it's really all because of the church, because that way people can call the church office and say, is the pastor in? And they can say, no, he's out with, on visitation. <laughs> I've decided also I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a dog. We already have one dog, but I'm going to get another dog. I'm going to call that name Deacon John. And so that when they call the office, they can say, well, he's out on visitation with Deacon John. But y'all didn't get that, did you? 
You're very slow today, very slow. In the, at least in the, in the East Auditorium, they were very fast over there. I want you to know that, very fast, all right? But nonetheless, I, I must acknowledge I'm somewhat of a novice sailor, even though we've been doing it for a few years now. And I'm quite aware that there are some things that when it comes to sailing, I need to get some help with. For example, um, when, it when it's time to put up the mast, uh, I've learned that I need to get some help. So uh, I, I want you to see how one guy is able to do it by himself. I this is a video of a guy with a boat exactly like ours, and he's able to put up his mast and, uh, with pulleys and winches, and he's very fast. He walks very, very fast. We have the same thing. You, put, you, you raise the mast at the back, and you get all the, all the lines clear, and then you take the mast and you move it uh, backwards, and you sit it in the center of the boat in the place. It's actually called the tabernacle is where the bottom of the mast goes. And you put it in there, you put some pins and some uh, so forth and so on. He's got a little bit of trouble there, but now he's got it all straightened out. And this is fascinating to me. This guy, look, one-handed virtually, he, he just, okay, I'm gonna pull on that line and watch what happens. It's quite amazing to me. Now, I want you to know that's never been my experience. It has never been. As a matter of fact, here's what happened this past spring. We put, you put up the mast at the beginning of the season when the boat's in the water, then you take it down as you take the boat out for the winter. And so I arranged for Ben, our son, to meet me down at the dock and another friend who's a, a very experienced sailor. And we were going to put up the mast. And so um, we're, we wouldn't dare do it on the water, by the way. We don't want to get that wet. But nonetheless... I just marvel at this guy. So we, we managed to get it up, kind of like what he's got it there. And I was sitting down right where he's standing right now, and I was putting in the last of the cotter pins and that sort of stuff. And um, as I was sitting there, I felt one of the lines, that one of the, the halyard, which is, if you will, the rope that attaches to the sail. So the sail's down here. It attaches to a line, to the halyard. It's to go up through a pulley. And as you pull up that, it, it, you can imagine, you're pulling and it goes up. Well, I felt the very end of that rope, which is supposed to be on the, on the, at the bottom of the boat, I felt it flutter from the top. And I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to do this? This which is in my lap has to be up there through the pulley and down the other side. Any idea how you get 25 feet up like that? There's no way you have to put the mask back down again. So we did it again. But I thought, since we've already done it once today, why don't we just cut a few corners and we'll do it? Well, in the process, can I say, don't ever cut some corners when you're going to bring the mask back down because you can break things. I know you can. We broke the little gooseneck that's attached, that, that attaches the boom. To, and you, some of you are going, I don't want to know all this. Well, let me tell you. I called up the Catalina company. I said, I've broken the gooseneck. And they said, well, we need, and I need to buy a new one. You need to order a new one. And they said, well, need, need, need you to know, sir, that gooseneck, when we designed it back in the 80s, we learned is very, very fragile, and it breaks. I said, do you think? <laughs> do you think? So we've made a new one. We've designed a new one. We'll be glad to send it to you. I said, okay, please send it. And they said, please send us $105 first. All right, so they wanted money. Of course they did. They sent the new one, and then I got it, and I go, okay, so they've made a new gooseneck that no longer works well with the boom that I had from 1984. This is a new model. So that meant I had to take the boom off, take it down to the machine shop, have them machine it and do it right. And we lost in the process about four weeks of sailing. The point here today is... I have no idea how that guy did it by himself. Instead, I'm quite aware that I got myself in somewhat of a jam, and I do that with some regularity. I need help on a lot of fronts, 
Always, always. There are times when you're like me when you get stuck in a jam and you go, okay, I can't get out of the mess by myself, but it's, it's not a big deal and it's not real expensive to get out of it, though I don't like spending $105 any more than you do. But then there are other times when the stakes are higher and the damage in the middle of the mess is incredibly severe. And in those moments, asking for help can be extremely frightening because you'd go, man, if only $105 would fix this. It's, it's like people who attend Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. They, they understand that alcohol has an incredible power over their lives. And, you know, as AA has worked with alcoholics for, for years now, they've found a way in which they can help alcoholics get extricated from the addiction of alcohol. They, it's a 12-step program, and to be fully extricated, th those people, some of you in, in the life of our church, have had to go through all 12 steps. But can I remind you of what the very first step is? That to get extricated from that mess is they have to say, we admit we are powerless over our addiction. That the first key to getting cured, getting help, is to acknowledge, I need help. In the context of this story we're going to look at today, we've been looking at it now for two weeks, today's the third week, we're going to see this same thing come through again that we are people who need help. Now, I thought I would demonstrate it this way, apart from the silliness that I have with my boat. Uh, I thought, I'd like you to see uh, somebody who helps me on a regular basis. Carol Smith is part of the staff of our congregation. Would you welcome her to the stage today, please? Carol. <laughs> Carol has been on staff with us for some uh, 17 or 18 years. She fills the role of parish nurse. Uh, and the reason... You, you want to start this right off the bat here? She, she, I ask her to take my blood pressure usually once a week at the end of worship services. At the end, not in the middle. I'm looking for when I'm most rested, okay? How am I do, going to do today? Well, we're going to find out. I'm going to do fine, right? So here's, here's our understanding that as a congregation, it's our responsibility to care for you as best as we can holistically. Care for you spiritually care for you in relationships, care for you in terms of your careers, to care for you in terms of the way in which you manage your finances, and can we help you with your health as well? And so Carol is here at all events. One ninety over 70? <laughs> 136 over, over 80. Well, that's not too bad, given the stressful moment of this right here. Okay. So here's what I want you to understand. That she's here at all events, not for the sake of emergencies per se, though that happens from time to time. But more so, if you've got questions about your, about your health, about a doctor's appointment coming up, maybe you need to step in and have your blood pressure taken every week. There are lots of people who do that. Or maybe you've got some other questions regarding your health that you'd say, I wish I had some help. Her office is in the west hallway, okay? The, right down by the pastor's office is across the hallway from there. And we'd be glad if you'd stop in and see her, right? All right. Thanks, Carol. Well, okay, so that's not too bad. All right, thank you, Carol. Again, my point was, one, I wanted you to learn about that ministry and, and make yourself, you know, be certain that you use her services. But more importantly than that, here's my understanding. Her willingness to offer help helps me and helps other people come to their senses sometimes. We had somebody recently that uh, their blood pressure at the end of a worship service was well over 200. We said, you go straight from here to the emergency room. 
And the reality is, it was that business of somebody coming alongside and saying, can I help you decipher what's going on? Can I, can I come, and if you're willing to ask for help, I'll get some help to you. That's really what she does in her office, and it's really what we see in Luke chapter 15. Would you look at it with me, please? Jesus is speaking. In verse 11, he says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Do you see verse 17? He came to his senses. That's that first step in AA. I'm powerless over my addiction. I need some help. I've come to my senses. Look what happened. Verse 20, he gets up and he goes to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Why? Well, because this son of mine was dead. He is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. I want you to note, it's when he came to his senses that this young person turned his life around. After he came to his senses, he got up and he says, I'm going to go home. I'm going to go back to the Father. He, he did something that spiritual people have a word for. It's called repentance. I'm going this way, and I'm realizing it's not working out the way I'd planned, and it's bringing all kinds of struggle into my life. It's not what God had for me, and I repent, and I go the other way. I'm literally leaving this country behind. I'm going back to where I came from. This willingness to go home, this willingness to say, I'm going to stop trying to fix things myself. I'm, I, when we stop saying, I've got to prove something to ourselves, stop trying to be fulfilled by ourselves, we have this awakening where we, we come through our senses. I can't do this on my own. And we pray a prayer, something like this. God, if you're real, be real to me. Awaken in me the willingness to turn toward you for help. Perhaps you're courageous enough to pray a prayer like that today. Maybe you've never prayed it before, but you'd pray it for the first time. Some of us pray it almost every day, literally every day, every moment of every day. God, in this situation, I'm turning to you for help. Later on in in our time together here, we're going to give you an opportunity to respond and to pray that sort of prayer specifically. We're going to give you an opportunity to pray with somebody, one of the leaders of our church, and, and say, I, I need God's help in this matter. But before we get to that moment, can I remind you what kind of reception you're going to receive when you turn to God? What, what kind of father, what kind of God is waiting for us? Because we read this in verse 20, that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him 
and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. Who's waiting for us to return? It's this God, this father who runs towards the prodigal child. Whether you're a son or whether you're a daughter who's wandered far away, God the Father is running toward you if you return. And I want you to understand, this is a really big deal. You see, think about what's going on here as this audience is listening to Jesus speak. It's first century, right? It's Middle East. And uh, they had some things in their culture that we would say, well, that doesn't quite make sense to us. For example, the, you know, as a father in that culture, he would have been wearing a long robe. And to run, he would have had to pick up that robe and get it above his ankles. Did you know that to expose your ankles for a man, to expose his ankles or calves in that sort of culture was humiliating? He was willing to be humiliated in going out to greet his son. Beyond that, beyond the humiliation, a man of importance, a man of age, a man of respect never ran anywhere. He always moved with quiet confidence and quiet step forward. Hey, we, we would we'd say, well, I, if you need to run, you need to run. But there are some situations in our culture where somebody shouldn't run. For example, if the president was to arrive in Decatur this week, and Air Force One was to land at the, on the runway. Do you know how a runway is long enough that will handle a, a 747, by the way? But nonetheless, if it was to land, and those stairs would pull up to the front door of that plane, and the president was to come out, and you were going to go, and you were, you were the, the designated person who's going to greet the, the president. Would you expect the president to run to you? No. Regardless of whether or not you like him, it would be your responsibility to move toward him, Right? That would be how it would work. Now, in that day, for a man to be running towards a wayward son was like, that's just not right. And there's something else in, at play in here that the audience around Jesus would have understood. See, they would have acknowledged that this young person has gone off and squandered family wealth, has gone off and has denied the family history and has walked away from, well, he's gone this young person has gone and hung out with Gentiles because he's eating with pigs. Jews don't associate with anyone who eats pigs. And so he's out there with the pigs, with the Gentiles. You know, they have a ceremony in the ancient world, in the Jewish culture, it's called a kasaha. And this kasaha went this way, that when somebody left the family and left the village and broke this kind of community life, that as the son was returning, as the child was returning, they, the, the leaders of the village would meet that young man, would meet that daughter at the village gates, and they would stop them from coming in, and they'd take a clay pot, and they'd take a clay pot and crash it and smash it on the ground. And they would say, kasaha, you have broken community with us, you're not welcome back. You can never return here. And yet here we have the father running, exposing his legs in humiliation, running in a way in which men don't run, and getting in front of the neighbors and saying, you are not going to do that ceremony to my son. Instead, day after day after day, he's looking on the horizon, waiting, watching, when is my child coming home? And when that child comes home, 
up come the, up comes the rope and the running starts and you're not doing kasaha. I'm going out there and I'm grabbing that baby of mine and I'm putting my arms around him. I'm grabbing her and I'm showering her. It says, with kisses. Hmm. Let me ask you this. Do you understand that this is the God who waits for you? This is how God responds to us. This is the God we find. The God who waits for you, friends, is the God who runs to you and wants to meet you with open arms of acceptance, kisses of love, tears of great joy. You know, um, perhaps to bring it home a little bit in a, in a more tangible way into our culture, I'm reminded of what happened in Barcelona in the Olympics in 1992 when the Olympics were in Spain that year. There was a, um, a British guy by the name of Derek Redmond who was running for Britain. He hadn't been really expected to make the Olympics because while he was known in international uh, racing circles, he was a sprinter, that he was a man of, who had some potential. In the years leading up to the Olympics in 1992, he'd had a series of very bad injuries. And even four months prior to the Olympics, it was expected he wouldn't be in the Olympics because he had had, an, he's had his fifth surgery on one of these injuries. He'd actually torn his Achilles tendon and they, they thought there's no way he's going to be ready to sprint in the Olympics. But he worked hard, his family gathered around him, the coaches gathered around him, and wouldn't you know, he made the Olympics in Barcelona, 1992. Derek Redmond is his name, running for Britain. He won the first heat that he was in. He got the fastest time for the quarterfinals. It was time for the semifinals. And I want you to watch a video as the BBC reports what happens to one of their own runners. It's got off very fast indeed. I'm flowing down the back straight. And as I describe it, I hear a funny pop. And two or three strides later is then when I felt it. And I felt the sort of the rip of the hamstring. Redmond has broken down. He's on the track, kneeling down, and Derek Redmond, on his injury problem, the jinx has struck again. And I just remember having my hand on the back of the leg and just sort of collapsing to the floor in, in pain. Then I remembered where I was, and it was just like, you're in the Olympic semi-final. And that's pretty much what, what made me get up and, and, and start to, to run, uh, or hobble. And I was just about to start into the home straight and I could sense this person on my left-hand side. And then I heard a, a very familiar voice shout out, Derek, it's me. And instantly I knew who it was. It was, it was my dad. Up until then, I'd managed to keep all my emotions in and hold it together relatively well. But as soon as I saw him, that was it, I, you know, I lost it all and I was in tears. I died. can't believe, I can't believe this has happened, why me? You know. With his track record and injuries, it may be his only Olympic appearance. He just can't hold it. He would always have been there with me and he spent many a year standing on the sidelines in the middle of the winter with a coffee in his hands, trying to keep warm. And all he was saying was, look, you've got nothing to prove, you're a champion to us, you'll be back, don't worry, we'll do this together. That's God. In the midst of your race, when, the midst where you, when you fall down and you're not going to get to the finish line by yourself, when you come to your senses and say, I'm coming home, that's the God who runs toward you. I have no idea who won that race in 1992 because that was just, that's the semifinal. I don't know who won the gold. 
Derek Redmond to this day talks about how people don't remember a whole lot about his career except particularly that moment when his dad showed up. Huh. Isn't that a great picture of the prodigal son? Not that he was a prodigal, but more so, that's the God who shows up in the middle of our lives. You see, when we have, when we have this understanding that it's God who is running towards us, we say, well, how do we know that? Well, can I remind you that he sent Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ, very God, showed up running through the cosmos, through the all of eternity, all through the ages of history. He landed right here on this earth, running toward humanity, running toward you. And it's, it's not that he's some God who is far off. Mm-mm. He is a God who is present and active. He's a relational God who longs to be close to you. And see, when we awaken to our need for help and decide to come home, we'll discover what we declared in worship just a few minutes ago, that help has a name, and that name is Jesus Christ. I would suggest to you today that for all of us, each and every one of us today, today is the day that we find our way to him again. For some people, it's like you're going this way and you've never turned around. But today is the day to turn around. For others of us, we've turned around, but now and then we turn back and we get very confused. I get that. So I want to give you a tangible way to be reminded of this, that there is a God, friends, there is a God who is scanning the horizon, watching for you. It's a God who took on your humiliation. It's a God who took on your shame and allowed himself to go to a cross. And he longs for us to return. Can I give you a way in which you could do that today? In a few moments, the worship teams are going to come back up and lead both rooms in worship. And while they are leading us in worship, there are going to be leaders at the front of the room who you could come and you could say, I need some help. I need help in returning to God. I have a friend who needs help in returning to God. I got this situation that I am powerless to do this by myself. I'm, I, I need this God who runs towards people. If you're making that kind of decision for the first time, may I suggest you follow it up with baptism next weekend. We're going to have some baptisms here. We've already got some people who want to get baptized. And I would suggest that maybe you'd like to get baptized. We'd love to hear from you this week in that regard. A way in which you can, if you will, publicly declare, hey, I've crossed the line of faith. I'm a person now who, I'm still working it out, but I guess I'm a Christian now. I'm tur- I've turned towards God, and I'm glad he's run to me. I've still got a lot to figure out, but I've at least made that decision. For those who've already made a commitment to Christ, but you've wandered away, and you continue to find yourself in a constant cycle of longing and regret, you want out of that, then I may invite you to surrender to the one who wants more for all of our lives than you could ever imagine. So I'm going to suggest that you do something of great courage today. You acknowledge your need for help. Not in some weird, crazy way, but in a simple way that includes prayer. In a conversation between you and God that says, Lord, I'm not making it on my own. I need help. I'm ready to return to the Father. I'm ready to come home. I'd like to pray with you about that today, even before the band comes. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, there are people today here who are um, in settings where they need to know that you are running toward them. Lord, 
for some of us, it's a case that, well, we, 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 we turn to you every day for help in every moment, and we're doing it again right now. For others, God, it's a case where it's been many years, long time since they asked you for help, but they're turning toward you today. And then, Lord, there are some who have never done it before. I'm praying, oh God, that you would, but today, by your grace, remind us again of the way in which we can turn to you. We would, we'd come to your place of holiness, your altar, and say, we need your help, God. We lean into you, and we ask that you would meet us. In the name of Christ.